This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Congratulations on this very important and needed work. Um, so you call your book um, an immigrant's manifesto, and you present a significant challenge to the narrative we're hearing most loudly right now about immigrants. So let's begin there. Uh, what is the prevailing story right now about who immigrants are and what they're about, what they're doing here? Well, if you were to believe our president, we are rapists and criminals, and we're about to run out onto the streets and take what we can and take it back to our countries. That's the prevailing narrative about immigrants, unfortunately, not just in this country, but around the world, which is why I wrote this book. You know, people are not plants. We've always moved around the continents. Um, and today, there's uh, a quarter of a billion people, including many of the people in this room, who were born in a country other than the one we're living in. Um, if all the migrants by ourselves would form a country, we'd be bigger than Indonesia. We'd be the fourth largest country in the world. So never has been, have there been so much migration, that, you know, with the availability of uh, cheap plane fares, for example. Um, uh, Airfares uh, have only doubled since uh, the 1980s, but the number of people on planes have gone up at least quadrupled. So people are moving like never before, and they're moving not because they want to, but because uh, the rich countries have stolen the future of the poor countries. Um, and my book really began uh, with something, with a story that my grandfather told me. So my grandfather was born in India, and then he worked uh, most of his life in colonial Kenya. He worked for a Scottish uh, trading company, going from village to village in East Africa. And then he retired in London, uh, where his son, my uncle, was living. And one day he's sitting in a park, he's minding his own business. And then this elderly British gentleman comes up to him and says, why are you here? Why don't you go back to your country? And then my grandfather, who, you know, as a Gujarati knows what business is, <laughs> um, he said, uh, because we are the creditors. You came to my country, you took all my gold and my diamonds. So we've come to collect. We are here because you were there. And so it seems to me um, that there's, there's a narrative about migrants uh, in Europe, uh, in the United States, um, in a lot of the world, um, which is that people are coming to these countries to take and to, to steal. 
um, Trump compared uh, Mexican migrants to vomit. He said, blah, these people are like vomit. These are human beings that he's comparing to puke. Um, so what I want to do with this book is to challenge that narrative. And what I say is that people are moving not because they hate their homes or their families or their trees or their native cuisines. They're moving because they have no choice. They're moving because the rich countries stole the future of the poor countries through colonialism, through war, through inequality, and through climate change. You describe migrants in terms of ordinary heroism. Tell us about one of the people you met or one of the families you met. Yeah. So I'm a storyteller. And um, um, there's a huge contest around the world now which relates to storytelling. Um, the world is dominated now, many of the countries, by these strong men. Uh, Trump, Modi, Putin, Erdogan, Orban, Bolsonaro, right? Maybe there should be an international contest of strong men. They can all like wrestle and find out who's the strongest of them all. Um, but these people are doing incredible long-term damage to the countries that they're ruling over. But they came to power, and it's been very interesting, like watching the rise of the strongmen. Um, the, as soon as they came to power, they clamped down on uh, civil liberties, um, on the rights of minorities like women and gays. Um, but why did they come to power? Because the general term for them, for all these strongmen, is populists. A populist is, above all, a gifted storyteller. He can tell a false story well. So Trump's story in, uh, in the United States is, you know, America has an M&M problem, the Muslims and Mexicans. Um, and when he, um, you know, no one took him seriously when he um, uh, ran for the Republican nomination. People thought he was a joke. You know, he, was a, he had no experience in politics. It's, um, basically, he was known for this celebrity shows and uh, beauty pageants and really tacky real estate. And then, to everyone's astonishment, he gets elected president. He did so because he stoked this fear of the other really well. And he did it at a time. It was, um, the roots of Trump's rise, of many of these populist rise in, across Europe, is the 2008 financial crisis. So in, in 2008, you know, the, around the world, there were people who were just devastated because they had been sold houses that they couldn't afford by these bankers. In the United States, the government bailed out the bankers and left the people who you know, had these houses, they were... Uh, they had to just walk away from their houses, lose their equity. But the bankers made out really well. So there was this incredible rage. And at the same time, uh, there were all these jobs lost in um, places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio. Um, and I've, in my book, I talk about those parts as well. I took a long drive um, the summer of 2016. And I remember going to this... Uh, little town called Warren, Pennsylvania, which was this really lovely, 
town, or I thought it was lovely, with these beautiful old brick buildings uh, on a river in uh, the Alleghenies in Pennsylvania. And it had been an industrial town, um, which was dominated by this one company, the Blair Company, which sold raincoats to American GIs during the war. And they actually had a museum, so I went in the Blair Museum and I saw the history of that corporation and the town. So in the 1970s, the 1980s, America stopped being a place that could manufacture garments uh, that could compete with Chinese-made garments, right? So, um, and the people in the town had, there was nothing else to do. They hadn't been trained or educated to do anything else. So I walked out in the town and there were young white men and women, they were like zombies, just walking through this depopulated town. Um, and basically, they, I later found out they were just hooked on opioids. It felt like Harlem in the 1980s. And I walked into this antique store where the people of the town were literally selling the, their family jewels, they had nothing else to sell. And there was a veteran who walked me around a very, you know, nice man who told me where to get a bite to eat. And I said, this, it's a beautiful town. He said, it used to be. Now the only industry left is the military or the drug trade. So the people in places like Warren couldn't understand what, what the hell had happened to them. And along comes this man, this showy New York real estate guy, who says, well, I'll tell you, uh, your problem is these, uh, these Muslims and these Mexicans. They're coming across here, they're going to take your jobs. Um, they're, you know, they're on welfare, they're going to do all these things. They were also outraged, the people in these towns. And they were going to come for the bankers. Um, and the bankers, being no fools, the elites in these countries, knew that they had to channel outrage away from themselves. And who better than the newest, the weakest, the immigrants? So because I'm a storyteller, in this book, I've got stories, I've got statistics, and I have an argument. And my argument is essentially this, that we, the, the rich countries owe it to the rest of the world to bring in immigrants, because it, I'm arguing for immigration as reparations. So I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times uh, last week, um, which nothing I've ever written has gotten such an enormous response, both pro and con. You know, I'm not saying, let us in, we'll be nice, cuddly little immigrants, we'll make everything better. Uh, you know, I'm saying to the rich countries that they owe it to the poor countries because they stole their future through these four things that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. That's a very subversive argument. I am a subversive kind of guy. <laughs> Not so cuddly, but subversive. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so speaking of, um, you know, false stories told well, you describe this um, in your book, you describe a, a the blatant racism in this novel uh, called Camp of the Saints, <sighs> which, uh, as you say, has influenced people such as Steve Bannon and Marie Le Pen. Tell us about this book. Yeah, so I, there's a chapter in my book where I look into this origins of, sort of um, hatred of immigrants. Um, and a lot of this, the modern theory of the West being invaded by this mob, this horde, it comes from this poisonous French novel that came out in 1973 by a man named Jean Raspail called Camp of the Saints. 
which imagines a whole convoy of people from my birthplace, Calcutta, filled with these really monstrous beings. They eat their own excreta, they copulate with each other's children, and they're coming to France to live there as this migrant horde. They're not armed, but they're just going to clamber onto shore. And, and the novel imagines this kind of French fifth column of liberals who are going to welcome these immigrants and then, you know, what it's going to do to France and then imagines a war where the true French are ready to repel the migrants with armed force. The prose of the novel is a whiter shade of purple. I mean, it's just unreadable, but it became this very influential novel in Europe and then it came over to the United States in... Um, in the 1980s, there's a malevolent Michigan ophthalmologist named John Tanton, who's the godfather of the contemporary American anti-immigrant uh, movement. He founded Numbers USA and FAIR and the Center for Immigration Studies. These are um, the nation's foremost anti-immigrant groups. And in fact, a couple of them have been labeled hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center. But this guy, Tanton, he reprinted this novel. So there's a huge vein of, sort of hysterical realism, uh, particularly when it comes to India. Um, and maybe I'll read out a couple of sections because it's, it's not just people like um, Jean Raspail, but it's you know, people who otherwise um, that we think of as liberals, like environmentalists. John Tanton was a mem board member of the Sierra Club and also of the uh, uh, Petrovsky, Michigan chapter of Planned Parenthood. About this kind of strange confluence of environmentalists and um, reproductive health people and strangely anti-immigration exactly. folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even though, you know, there's a very celebrated French anthropologist named Claude Lévi-Strauss, you know, this, you know, a huge figure in anthropology. Okay, so this is Lévi-Strauss in 1955, Triste Tropique, which is maybe his most famous book. He writes about going, visiting Calcutta, my birthplace. Quote, what we are ashamed of as if it were a disgrace and regarded as a kind of leprosy is in India the urban phenomenon reduced to its ultimate expression, the herding together of individuals whose only reason for living is to herd together in millions, whatever the conditions of life may be. Filth, chaos, promiscuity, congestion, ruins, huts, mud, dirt, dung, urine, pus, humors, secretions, and running sores. All the things against which we expect urban life to give us organized protection, all the things we hate and guard against at such great cost, all these byproducts of cohabitation do not set any limitation on it in India. They're more like a natural environment which the Indian town needs in order to prosper. To every individual, any street, footpath, or alley affords a home where he can sit, sleep, and even pick up his food straight from the glutinous filth. Far from repelling him, this filth acquires a kind of domestic status through which, having been excluded, excreted, trampled on, and handled by so many men. In certain respects, at least, these people, although tragic, appear childish to us. First, there is the engaging way in which they look and smile at you, then their indifference to propriety and places, which is forced upon your attention since they sit or lie about in any position, their liking for trinkets and cheap finery, their naive and indulgent behavior. 
Can you imagine? <laughs> this is 1955, this celebrated professor in anthropology is talking about an entire country describing them in this way. Every Indian picks his food straight from the glutinous filth. Yeah, that's what, growing up, you know, I'd ask my mom, what are we having for dinner? She'd say, glutinous filth. <laughs> so my point is that this, there's a, you know, long tradition of this hysterical fear of the other in Europe particularly, which then came over to India as well. I talk about Paul Ehrlich, another celebrated uh, academic uh, uh, who wrote The Population Bomb, you know, who claimed that um, in 20 years we'd basically all be dead because it, it, it was, you know, one of these Malthusianists, and this was in the 1970s he predicted this. So, um, you have this great line about professors foaming at their typewriters. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm a professor, I know the temptation. But you can foam at the typewriter all you want, but you need to back up your foaming sure, with data. Sure. And that's what I've done in this book. That took me a hell of a lot of time uh, to, and I have 50 pages of source notes. So all my foaming has been fact-checked. Yes, I noticed that, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, some of what you just read from Claude Levi-Strauss is, uh, you know, classic... Uh, racist tropes invented to justify colonialism and, and slavery. So would you say that those those narratives are essentially unchanged right now or experiencing, you know, a resurgence with some kind of modification? How, how do you think? Yeah, so colonialism's morphed into corporate colonialism, right? So um, often it's colonialism with a brown face. Uh, uh, Nehru talked about the little brown Englishmen, who, you know, who replaced the white Englishmen. I'll, I'll get a little more into the, you know, what colonialism did to these countries and why it's so central in the migration uh, issue. So, um, central to your argument about reparation as well. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, the biggest inequality in today's world is the inequality of citizenship. You know, I. It, more than your religion, more than your gender, more than anything else, uh, the country that you're a citizen of, will that'll define your future. Your humanity is defined by your nationality. Um, in the, um, when the British arrived in India at the beginning of the 18th century, India's share of world GDP was 23%. By the time they left, 200 years later, in 1947, India's share of world GDP was under 4%. During the colonial period, the European share of world GDP went from 20% to 60%. 12 million slaves were taken over the Atlantic um, to enrich, um, you know, uh, well, the United States. Um, so colonialism was a mass looting of the colonies. Um, and not only did they loot these countries, they made sure that they couldn't develop their industries. So the reason Gandhi urged every Indian to have a spinning wheel is because it was the ultimate sabotage of the colonial project. The British saw India as a place which could grow cotton, and then they would take the cotton and send it to the mills of Lancaster, and then sell the Indians ready-made garments, which they had to pay huge prices for, because the British wouldn't give Indians permits to build their own factories. It was a deliberate policy. So if every Indian were to spin their own clothes in their own home, then that effectively, you know, uh, 
uh, of an end run around this British colonial project. Um, and there were never that many British that were ruling India at any given time. They ruled because they divided Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs and Christians against each other, right? There was this divide and rule policy. Gandhi once said, you know, we are afraid of the British, but if every Indian spit in unison, we could form a puddle large enough to drown every Englishman in India. And he's probably right. Um, so, but it didn't end. You know, people say, ah, well, colonialism, that was a long time ago, get over it. It didn't end with the uh, rulers leaving because they left their corporations behind. Um, and so I've got uh, a chapter about corporate colonialism uh, and what, what happens to countries when multinationals move in. So if you go to any African country, you'll see these, um, if you go to the Sheraton or the Hilton, you'll see these small groups of um, um, white executives from England or France or the US, and then the local elites. You, you, there might be the local general and a couple of the local executives all huddling together over very expensive wine, plotting how to you know, loot the country. Um, and I'll give you one story from my book which, which really illustrates this, because with all the, you know, I have all this data, but that's not good enough unless you have the story. So I spend a lot of time going around the world and speaking to migrants. So for example, I was in Tangier at the tip of Morocco. And I was a young family from Guinea, uh, a mother, a father, and a newborn baby. And they were planning to cross the Mediterranean and get to Spain uh, because there was no future for them in Guinea. And the baby had just been born. I held the baby in my arms. Uh, it was five days old. And then they showed me the boat they were planning to go over on. It wasn't even a lifeboat. It was a plastic dinghy, like a little beach thing that you give to kids. Um, and they were going to drug the newborn so that he would stay quiet and not attract the attention of the Moroccan or the Spanish police. And, and I, I, I feared for the newborn's life. I feared for their lives. And then, you know, I started speaking to them and I started wondering, what is it about life in Guinea that is so hellish that this little family are willing to risk their firstborn's life and their own life to get to, you know, what is it that's been, that's driven them out of this country? Well, Guinea has about uh, half the world's bauxite. Um, and so it's actually, you know, it's, it's a mineral that is used in all sorts of things. But the bauxite is owned by an American hedge fund called Oxif. And uh, Oxif has, um, been in Guinea and it's in cahoots with uh, the local uh, leader and uh, who's accumulated a fortune for himself and his many wives. Oxif has paid hundreds of millions of dollars in fines to the SEC and the Justice Department for corrupt practices in Africa. So Dan Ock, who's the head of Oxif, he recently bought an apartment at 220 Central Park South in New York, where the apartments go for a quarter of a billion dollars. But he kept his other house in New York, a penthouse at 15 Central Park West, which cost a mere $100 million. 
Another executive of Oxif, Michael Cohen, bought a 900-acre English estate. So this money is going directly from Guinea to people like uh, Dan Ock and Michael Cohen. Every year, $150 billion leaves Africa and goes promptly into tax havens. Um, every year, 40% of all the multinational profits uh, in the world go immediately to these tax havens. So the money goes out illegitimately through these you know, uh, hedge funds that bribe these local officials and legitimately into these tax havens. The actual people living in uh, Africa don't get to see any of this money. That's why this little family, they told me, you know, it was impossible for them to make a living. They were educated, but they said, all we can do is sell things on the street. So colonialism did not end with the empires leaving. Uh, and I saw another instance of this firsthand. Uh, some of the earliest reporting I did was uh, on the Union Carbide gas disaster in Bhopal, in India, uh, which is some of the most harrowing reporting that I've done. In 1984, an American um, chemical company, Union Carbide, which is now part of Dow Chemical, went into the city of Bhopal and they had a pesticide plant. Uh, uh, to save money, they cut back on refrigeration and safety mechanisms. One night, the plant blew up and Tens of thousands of people were murdered by this poisonous chemical cloud. It was the worst industrial disaster in history. More people died than in Chernobyl. Um, tens of thousands of people died, and hundreds of thousands of people were maimed and are still dying. If you got blinded in both eyes, you got the equivalent of $500 in compensation. So I did reporting on carbide, and, you know, I, and I spoke to the people who were the survivors of this. And what happened to Union Carbide? It just cut off its Indian subsidiary and grew another limb somewhere else. So the structure of a modern multilateralist, it's immune to um, sovereign prosecution. Um, and that's another reason that people are, uh, are, are leaving. Because as I said, you know, this corporate, uh, imperial colonialism got replaced by corporate colonialism. There's continued extraction of resources as well as environmental catastrophes that are kind of created and left without any repercussions. Exactly. So when these people come from these countries, you know, to the uh, home bases of these multinationals, they are the creditors. They're just following the money, their money. So you, you write very compellingly about refugees as a subset of immigrants. Um, and you say that refugees unsettle us in part because they remind us of our precarity and the ways in which our own lives can be, you know, changed without, um, you know, our control or sense of um, power over our own lives. Um, why do you think our sense of responsibility to these communities has weakened? So um, the whole system of refugees and uh, refugee protection, these covenants that protect refugees, it really um, was born out of the post-war experience of Jews during the Holocaust. There were all these shiploads of Jews who fled Europe and sought refuge in places like the United States and Canada, and they were turned away. Um, there were actual uh, you know, the United States at the time was an incredibly anti-Semitic country. They didn't want these Jews. And so after the war, the nations of the world got together and had these uh, 
asylum covenants that said that anyone who has a well-founded fear of persecution based on five criteria um, can legally claim asylum uh, in another country. So most uh, asylum seekers, uh, most refugees, they don't go from um, you know, Iraq to the United States or Syria uh, to Germany. They go from Syria to Lebanon or Jordan. 85% of these uh, refugees really go from um, to a neighboring country, generally a country that is only slightly less poor. Um, but when the refugees started arriving in places like Germany, you remember when there were four million Syrians afoot and Angela Merkel decided to let in a million uh, refugees. I mean, all hell broke loose. Germany, by the way, I was in Germany at the time and <laughs> it was fantastic. There was signs saying refugees welcomed. The, the whole, it seemed like the whole country was trying to expiate that sin of the Holocaust by now welcoming refugees. And um, they seem actually in that, that group of people seem in agreement with your argument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the, they are owed. These communities are owed. That's right. Well, and now Germany, you know, actually it, it's soliciting even more people because they have a huge labor shortage. Mm -hmm. But when these refugees started coming into Europe, there was, it was interesting to read the reactions. The refugees repre represent disorder, chaos, mm -hmm. right? Syria was a middle-class country until the U.S. went in and uh, launched the Iraq war, and then everything fell apart in the Middle East. I mean, it wasn't paradise, but all these countries were... The people who were coming over weren't destitute uh, farmers. They, in many cases, were middle class. They were doctors, engineers, lawyers, technicians. So when they came over with their families, people in Europe were reminded that this chaos, this disorder could be their fate next. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an internal calculus and it was very discomforting to them that suddenly their life could also change suddenly and irrevocably and all at once. Um, and so when these people came, they represent something which is, you know, the, the, the orderly societies could not deal with. You know, what they represented was the looming future of the 21st century in which this is only the harbinger Mass migration is going to be the defining human phenomenon of the 21st century, particularly as climate change kicks in. You actually write about women migrants being a new phenomenon. Half of all migrants in the world today are women, and this today, this is also a new phenomenon. So I spoke to many female migrants, uh, particularly in um, coming from Central America to the U.S. Um, in uh, women's shelters in Tijuana. And when they set out from places like Honduras and Guatemala to make the journey north, many of them carry contraceptives with them because so many are raped along the journey that they carry contraceptives to you know, prevent pregnancy. Um, the arrangement uh, that it, it's so you know, frequent, to, uh, what they have to do with the coyotes, that it's there's actually a term for it. It's called querpomatic, uh, uh, which is a, a, you know a play of uh, credomatic. Credomatic is uh, the credit card processing in much of Latin America. Querpomatic means to pay with your body. 
Um, it's the same thing in Africa, uh, what happens to female migrants as they move. And many of these stories are just, you know, not told. Um, but I, I spoke to these female migrants and they told me their stories. And many of them are, are coming with their young children. This is why I call them ordinary heroes. I spoke to a 23-year-old Honduran migrant named Saira in a women's shelter in Tijuana. And she had this 18-month-old baby in her arms and uh, this boy who was just cherubic, he was, you know, playing with my phone. I just wanted to take him home. He was so, this beautiful boy. And she told me her story um, that she was from San Pedro Sula in Honduras, which is one of the most violent places there. Um, and she was going to claim asylum because uh, her husband had witnessed a gang murder and had to flee immediately. Her husband wasn't in the gangs, but he happened to be a bystander. And then the gangs came to her house and said that they would uh, take her boy uh, and uh, unless her husband came back. Um, so she had to flee immediately. She just got on the next bus and went north. <clears throat> and then I said to her, um, you know, you can claim asylum, but this was at the height of the family separation policy where U.S. government agents were snatching babies from their mother's arms. In one case, when the baby was breastfeeding, um, I said, they're going to take your boy away from you. She said, I know that. I've heard that. And tears filled her eyes. And she said, but you know, this is what a mother's love is. I would rather never see this boy again and know that he's safe somewhere. And one day maybe have a chance of seeing him then know that he's dead where I come from and I have to put him in a box six feet below the ground. This is the choice that I'm faced with. And then I thought, well, who's making her have that choice? The United States put 1.8 million guns in Honduras during the Nicaraguan war to arm the Contras. And we've been putting guns in there ever since. We emptied the prisons of California in the 1980s and 90s and deported some of the most hardened criminals to these countries. And they were, MS-13, this feared gang, really was a gang that was founded in Los Angeles, not in, um, in the Northern Triangle countries. And so all these you know, young men without a future who'd never been to these countries were suddenly found themselves in these countries and they formed armed gangs and armed themselves with the guns that we sent there and then sold the only crop that they have left to sell, which is illegal drugs, to the United States. So we sell them the guns to wage these wars and conditions there are, um, the homicide rates are higher than the civil wars in the Middle East. You know, every day 700 guns cross into Mexico. 75% of the guns in Mexico come from the United States. 98% of the guns in the Bahamas come from the United States. And every time that the United Nations uh, has a convention or some sort of you know, protocol or treaty to stop the flow of these guns, the NRA stops it dead in the tracks and the US vetoes any action on guns. So the reason Saira is coming here with her little boy is that we have made life in her country unbearable. 
we made her country ungovernable. And for decades in these countries, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, we have toppled any democratically elected um, leader uh, or a, any, you know, anyone who would challenge American corporate control of these countries. They were known as banana republics because United Fruit uh, owned these countries. They owned most of the, uh, our corporations owned most of the land, the control, the junta. They were basically plantations run for our benefit. So then are we surprised when these people come here? You know, the, uh, um, yeah, Saira is coming here because we were there and continue to be there. So we've left families like her with hers with no options. Yeah, there's no option. And, you know, that's, so that's historically what we've done to the country. But then the, the most important factor is climate change. Um, the huge heat waves across these countries close to the equator, um, they can't grow crops. Their crops are withering in the fields. Uh, India right now is experiencing some of the you know, worst heat waves uh, it's ever had. Across the world, the climate is changing. Well, who's responsible for it? The United States is 4% of the world's population, but we put one third of the excess carbon in the atmosphere. The, the EU, another quarter. Uh, the average American uses as much energy as 35 Indians or 185 Ethiopians. By the middle of the century, by 2050, up to a billion people are going to be displaced by climate change. Land that is home to 650 million people will be underwater by uh, the middle of the century. And one third of all of Earth, um, which is home to 1.5 billion people, will be basically a desert. So, you know, where are all these people going to go? I mean, the, the West is afraid of four million Syrians fleeing the Syrian war. What happens when Bangladesh gets flooded and 400 million Bangladeshis have to find dry land? You know, they're going to head for the countries which caused the climate crisis in the first place. We built up our uh, economies, our industries by, and as a byproduct, there was, we fouled the atmosphere, we put all this excess carbon, and now the whole world has to pay the price. And these people are um, increasingly unwelcome in the countries they arrive at. You write um, about the sentiment towards even citizens of various countries. Um, tell us about the One Denmark Without Parallel Societies initiative. The one in Denmark? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, Denmark is crazy. They had, they had this thing called the meatball war, uh, which was, uh, the, the Danes uh, were really upset that Muslims wouldn't eat pork, or they thought that the Muslims would uh, ban pork uh, in Denmark, so they were demanding that people all across the country eat, including, you know, schools with lots of immigrants. They had to have pork and meatballs in the schools. Um, and they also, uh, now they have this, they've designated certain parts of Denmark as ghettos, officially. And in these ghettos, uh, children who go to these schools have to uh, be taken away from their parents for a certain number of hours per week and be taught in all these Danish values. Um, and they have, you know, what they are plans Danish for curfews. values? Good minimalist furniture. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it's insane. I mean, particularly in Northern Europe, you know, the limitations on immigrants, they're really laughable. At one point in Holland, um, the Dutch decided that uh, they only wanted certain kinds of uh, immigrants. So the government officially, they, they put out a DVD, which uh, all people wishing to immigrate to Holland uh, would have to watch. They had to buy this DVD, which cost some $450, and take a quiz on it. Um, but the, this test was exempted for citizens of rich countries like the US or... Uh, and the contents of the DVD actually showed Holland in a very bad light. It showed topless women sunbathing and uh, traffic problems, floods, gay couples kissing, and it was directed at Muslims who might want to immigrate uh, to, um, uh, to Holland. And it was, a pro it was a film produced by the Dutch government which made Dutch people look either very licentious or uh, it talked about flooding and traffic and problems that immigrants would have when they came there. So it was kind of a, an anti-propaganda or anti-tourism film. Um, and, so it was uh, intended based on stereotypes to discourage immigration. Exactly. And it was mandatory for... It was mandatory for this. So my friend Mohsin Hamid, the Pakistani writer, I was talking to him about this. He said, you know, the Dutch should just produce another film uh, called Wonderful, Wonderful Belgium. <laughs> Go there, it's closer. Um, yeah, so across Europe, there's this feeling of, of, you know, people coming in and not assimilating. They're not going to be Swedes or not going to be Danes or whatever. But guess what? They need these immigrants because they're not making enough babies. Germany um, had, had, uh, recently had, um, they realized that they needed tech workers. They had a shortage of uh, tech workers. They just, you know, they they're not making enough babies. So they put out a plan to attract, uh, to, to, to give out 20,000 German residence permits. But they said, you know, we'll be very strict about it. You can only come to Germany. If you learn German, you can only come for five years and you can't bring your families. And they needed, you know, highly skilled tech workers. So they, but even this proposal was really controversial. Um, there was these German conservative politicians campaigning on the slogan Kinder Stadt Inder, which is children, not Indians, uh, because the tech workers, you know, most of them they realize would be Indians. So Germans should make more babies, not import Indians. But the German, it, it passed, German government issued this call for 20,000, you know, permits, and they waited for the floodgates to open. Something like 20 Indians applied, <laughs> you know, because all these tech workers had a choice of the whole world to go to, which wanted their skills. And, you know, they said, screw you. We're not going to come for five years and not bring our families. And there's, a, there's many other places we can go to. So this is the twist in my book. So it's an angry book, as you can probably tell, because I'm outraged by, um, you know, this whole staggering hypocrisy of, of the rich countries demanding that these people not come. But the happy ending is that when people move, everyone benefits. The rich countries benefit, uh, the people who are moving benefit, and the countries they move from benefit. The rich countries benefit because these people who are coming in, um, first of all, 
it's a tremendous boom to GDP. Without immigration, America's economic growth would have been a full 15% lower from 1990 to 2014. Britain's uh, growth would have been 20% lower and Southern Europe's 30% lower. Uh, immigrants are 14% of the American population, but we've started a quarter of all new businesses and have earned over a third of all the um, uh, American Science Nobel Prizes, not to mention that we win all the spelling bees. Um, um, here in Silicon Valley, in the tech world, you know, everyone knows with, uh, the benefits of, of immigrants. Like there's this whole you know, booming industry wouldn't have been possible without immigrants. Um, birth rates, um, half of all Americans are over 40, and the US is going to become a nation of geezers as the baby boomers retire. And Americans are living longer and they're retiring uh, earlier, so there's a huge, you know, drain on uh, social security. Next year, the social security fund will actually give out more money than it takes in. In 15 years, uh, if you retire in 15 years, you'll only get 80% of the benefits you're entitled to because the fund is going broke. According to the social security administration, what can save it is immigrants, um, both legal and illegal or the undocumented. In fact, the undocumented are even better for social security because they pay in uh, social security through pay payroll taxes, but they're not eligible for benefits. So last year, the undocumented paid $13 billion in social security payments, but only got $1 billion uh, back. Um, birth rates, I mean, the replacement rate uh, is 2.1 babies per woman. Um, in the United States, it's been falling for the fourth year in a row. It's now 1.7 babies per woman. So it's simply not making enough babies. And we need uh, immigrants to come in. They're younger than the native born, and they work harder. Um, and so, you know, there really isn't a, a choice. There, all these countries, like Hungary, has been tremendously anti-immigrant. Hungary has a huge labor shortage right now and is actually demanding that its citizens work longer under you know, uh, their laws uh, demanding that, their, um, uh, that the work week be lengthened because they just don't have enough workers. So it benefits the countries that they're moving to. It benefits the migrants themselves because they, you know, in many cases, get to live. Their standard of living increases and it benefits that the countries, uh, the countries that they move from. Because if you want to make the world a better place, if you want to help the poorest on the planet, then the best way is remittances, the money that migrants send back. Um, and, and here too, the statistics are really startling. Migrants last year sent back $689 billion in remittances, usually in small amounts, $100, $200 through Western Union, to their villages, to their, their um, for their sister to go to school, you know, for their mother to build a house. Um, and it's also, it, it doesn't have to go through these corrupt uh, local elites. So the remittances last year were three times more than the direct gains from all the, uh, if all the trade barriers were to be abolished, it's four times more than all the foreign aid in the world. So, so it's highly move, redistributive. Exactly. When people move, everyone benefits. It is good for the planet. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, this very strong 
benefit to the community, really to the world, that immigration has to offer is so uh, kind of starkly in contrast to the narrative. Yeah, as I said, it's a contest of narrative, right? This is why I wrote this book. The narrative about immigrants, you know, in these countries, and now, like, next week, Trump has announced a plan that he's going to make, you know, American government forces, like ICE, round up a million uh, immigrants and deport them. So it's going to be a repetition of the family separation. Uh, we're going to see these images of children again being torn from their parents' uh, arms. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to be horrific and heart-rending, and it shames us as a nation. The mm -hmm. New York Times had a story about a four-month-old baby taken from his father, uh, who was Romanian, he was uh, Roma, and then the baby was put in a foster home in Michigan. The father was lied to, hustled on a plane back to Romania, and a year and a half later, when the, uh, the father finally located the baby, the baby didn't recognize the parents and and can't walk and can't uh, talk. Uh, the trauma, the level of trauma that's mm -hmm. been inflicted upon these children, you know, now we're going to see it all over again next week. And, and it's deliberate, this policy. Mm -hmm. The cruelty is deliberate. It's meant to send a message to other immigrants. Don't come here. Whatever conditions that you're in, um, whatever tyrannies you're under, we in America are going to be worse. We can be crueler than whatever cruel conditions you come from. You ain't seen nothing yet is the message that is going. This is what our nation has become. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as a clinician, I have to just say that there's really no question about how grossly traumatizing this is for lifelong, you know, the, the, both the children and the adults who, who live through this. Exactly. It can't be remedied. There is no compensation possible mm -hmm. that can do this. And, you know, it's, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, we can welcome, we can take in these migrants and many, many more because the nation is not full. The United States ranks 191st in the world in terms of density. It's a big nation and it's not just, you know, the rural West that we can put these migrants in. There's lots of cities like the cities of the Rust Belt. And I, there's a chapter in my book about this. The city of Schenectady, for example, in uh, upstate New York. Uh, um, so the Schenectady was this sort of decaying Rust Belt town, or, uh, the home of GE. GE shut down the factories, and um, you know there was nothing. There was, uh, there was crime, there was drugs. Uh, people were fleeing the city in large numbers. So the mayor of Schenectady, he heard about people from uh, the South American nation of Guyana. Then there's a big Guyanese community in Queens. Someone told him about them. So he started going to Queens and addressing... He's a Polish guy, Albert Jurzynski, and he started... And a Polish Republican. But someone had told him that these people work hard and they don't need public assistance. So he'd go to these Guyanese community meetings and say, oh, ye Guyanese, come to Schenectady. We'll give you cheap housing. We'll... And he personally drove them around Schenectady when they came in a bus and he took them to his uh, uh, mother-in-law's house for homemade Polish wine. In spite of that, they came. <laughs> and there's now 10,000 Guyanese living in downtown Schenectady. Hmm. Uh, there's a Guyanese national day, there's uh, cricket games, there's Guyanese parades, there's Guyanese on the city council. 
Next road to Schenectady, Utica, another town that was really, people were leaving in droves. It's filled with 7,000 Bosnians. There was a Methodist church uh, uh, in downtown Utica that was going to take a million dollars to demolish. Um, the Bosnians said, you know, we'll take it over for nothing. And it's now a thriving mosque. Uh, so immigrants can bring life to these places. There's still lots and lots of empty places in America. Um, and there are intelligent ways of bringing in migrants. There is an effect when they first come in on, for example, uh, the unskilled or high school dropouts among the native born. Communities along the border, it's true that when there's a big influx coming in, own, the schools and the hospitals uh, tend to get overwhelmed. But the intelligent way to deal with this is to, for example, expand the earned income tax credit, which benefits both uh, the uh, unskilled uh, native-born as well as immigrants, or to have a fee or tax on the tech companies that benefit by migration, and to use this money to redistribute it to um, to the communities that are the most affected by immigrants. You know, there are intelligent ways, but right now there are no intelligent ways being discussed. There's no hope of any immigration plans in Congress because the nation is incredibly divided. It's mm -hmm. about the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm hoping to do with my book, to change the narrative, to present the migrants as ordinary heroes. What I say in my book is, I'm not calling for open borders, I'm calling for open hearts. What would you do? If you knew that your child was going to get shot in San Francisco, and you knew that your child was absolutely going to, you know, get murdered, there was no, uh, or you were going to die of uh, hunger because you couldn't grow crops, wouldn't you just pick up and leave and, you know, try to go for a better life? During the age of mass migration in the 19th century, one quarter of Europe got up and moved to the United States biggest immigration influx in world history. And what happened? The United States replaced Europe uh, as the most powerful and the wealthiest uh, region in the world. Um, these people who are coming in now, even if we quadruple the number of people coming in, I mean, this, uh, last year we gave out a million green cards. We could easily give four times the number. Canada is looking to attract to triple its immigration intake because they know immigrants are good for the economy. When immigrants come in, they work harder, their crime rates are lower uh, than the native born, and they're assimilating even faster than the earlier 20th, uh, 19th century immigrants used to. Uh, so it's a win-win all around. And, and, and the reason that there's so much resistance to it is because of this populism, which is born of an economic anger. Um, and that anger should be channeled at the elites. It really rightly should be channeled at Wall Street. These are the people that stole the future of the people that vote for Trump. But the elites being no fools, put forward a candidate, you know, who could channel the anger away from themselves. And what happened to the elites? Trump gave them the biggest Christmas gift they ever received in the form of the tax cut. Um, he eliminated, basically destroyed the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, which is the thing that regulates the banks and the credit card companies, right? So it's what Hannah Arendt calls the alliance between the mob and capital. Uh, it's this sleight of hand which, you know, it seems to be working and, and immigration is the one thing that Trump is counting on to get him reelected. Um, you know, so this is why this book, I. 
I put aside this book on New York that I was working on and wrote this book now in response to the present emergency. Thank you so much, Suketu. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.